This morning's reading comes from Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. Let's pray. Father, your providence is indefinite and decisive. Yet so often we fail to trust your providence in your kingdom and in our lives. May we submit ourselves to the reign of your son, Jesus, and cling to your grace. Let your Holy Spirit speak through scripture and Pastor Jeff to declare your truth this morning. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Kyle. Well, I had uh, Kyle read that psalm because it was written by David uh, and his courtiers or his, uh, his court, and they wrote that psalm in anticipation of someday his son taking the throne. And today we're going to talk about the beginning of that monarchy. We're going to talk about the beginning of that kingdom that David himself foresaw off in the future, uh, Adolf Hitler. Nazi Germany, Saddam Hussein of Iraq, Kim Il-sung of North Korea, Muammar Gaddafi Libya, Vladimir Lenin of Russia, Yikiai Senwar of Hamas. What do all of these tyrants, these evil tyrants, have in common? Well, they have some things in common with the likes of Caesar who dissolved the Roman Empire and tried to put Christians to death, or Napoleon, who declared himself emperor of the world, or Muayyawa Umayyad of the first Islamic caliphate, who invaded Israel in 661 and killed the Jews and took their land. Talk about occupation. Or killing the Jews uh, under Adolf Hitler. What do all these dictatorships have in common. From history, we can see some common threads, actually a pretty common pattern. The first is political instability. There's always political instability, economic and social discontent. There's a roiling social unrest fueled by the failures of past leadership. And then there's the militarization of political parties. Partisan groups begin to arm themselves and form a revolution, and then they coalesce around an emerging leader. And next comes a tin-pot tyrant, the centralization of power and authority in the hands of a strong man who emerges and offers strength in place of weakness, the promise of stability in place of the chaos. 
and then the honeymoon always ends. Not too long after this promising man is chosen, installed, and begins governing, the facade disappears. It falls away as their true intentions are revealed. These tyrants get tired of negotiating and compromise, and so they take unilateral control over the people. And then there's repression of dissent. In order to maintain control, the new tyrant always cracks down on public debate, censuring the use of language deemed subversive to the new regime, coinciding with the use of their propaganda in order to control the thoughts and the information to shape public opinion and the erosion of any hope of the people to govern themselves again. And then lastly, this is followed by persecution of dissenting voices. Nonconformists are labeled rebels and dissidents and haters, followed by a systemic persecution and extermination of anyone who speaks against the great leader. Don't believe that? Go to China and speak against the leader and see what happens to you. And the text that we're looking at over the next coming weeks is going to introduce us to Israel's first king. And Israel's first king shows up in the story with similar promise, in similar times of unrest. But sadly, he will turn out to have many of the same qualities that I just read to you. This is very sad because he is right now a king of God's choosing. It's a story where there is a crisis, a social flashpoint, a demand for change in how Israel is governed. It's a story about the rise of an initially promising young man who would be king, but tragically, he will turn out like so many autocrats in history, persecuting the righteous and the innocent, doing unimaginable things, suppressing dissent, causing the deaths of many soldiers and civilians, and even putting to death, murdering God's own priests. And the promise of God-honoring, humble leadership is spoiled. And Saul becomes a man who thinks that he is above Torah law. And when you get to the end of the story, you will see he thinks he's actually above God. And that literally is the most dangerous place for a nation or a leader to be, is to think that they are above God's own rule. And so here we have the Bible, which doesn't pull any punches. The Bible holds nothing back. Listen, if you've got flaws and you're a biblical character, the biblical authors are going to record it. There is only one character in the entirety of Scripture who has no flaws, and his name is Jesus. But we're going to see, even though the Bible doesn't pull any punches, what it does is it shows us the horror and the tragedy of this man's atrocious reign over Israel, a nation intended to be a theocracy, ruled by God, with a human king who exemplifies His gracious, redeeming reign over the people. And instead, what they get is an autocracy, a man who thinks he can have what is God's alone. And that's the tragedy of the story of of Saul. We're going to give kind of an overview of that today, an overview of where the story is going. We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you want to turn there. We're going to look at this text and draw together some threads to see what it's saying to us. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest prophet, took bribes, and perverted justice. Here we go again. So all the elders of Israel, they've had enough. 
they gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, you're old, (laughs) and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a giant. And we remember what happened last time this happened, right? Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the nations have. Everyone else has a king. Why don't we? And when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, morally wrong. So he prayed to the Lord to complain. But the Lord said to him, listen to them. Listen to the people and everything they say to you. Listen, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. And they're doing the same thing to you, Samuel, that they have been doing to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Now, Samuel is an old man by this point. Now, the text says that he used to travel the circuit and he used to go from region to region, every tribe, and he used to judge all of their issues. He would hear all of their cases and be their judge. But now the old fella just doesn't travel well. Anybody else there? (laughs) That's me. That's why I don't travel much. He's got a bad back. He can hardly walk. The arthritis in his knees. So he doesn't go anywhere. So he is appointed now the job of judging to his sons. And the elders of Israel were motivated by the failure of Samuel's sons, Yoel and Abijah. And despite their promising names, Yoel in Hebrew means uh, Yahweh is God. And Abba, Yah, means Yahweh is my father. These sons of Samuel were following old patterns. The story just starts again, just like Hophni and Phinehas. And it's as if the people are saying, we're done with this. We're not doing this again. And so they make a demand of Samuel for a king. And God surprises Samuel. Instead of saying, pronounce this prophecy of judgment on the people, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, he says, listen to them. That means, listen to what they're really saying. Read between the lines, Samuel. They're just treating you the way they've always treated me. They've never wanted me to be their king. They want the benefits of being God's people, but they don't want me to rule over them. That's the problem here. And I think an application that you and I take away from this is that every single one of our prayers needs to be, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, whether you close the prayer that way or open it that way. This is why Jesus gave the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 13, this is why he gave them a prayer to pray. And that prayer begins with him teaching them to acknowledge the greatness and the grandeur of God, our Father who art in heaven. Where is God? Well, He's above you. He's above us. And so, He taught us to acknowledge God, who He is and His pecking order, where He is in the order of things, above all. And then He goes on to teach them. He tells them, pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Notice the petition, the petitionary prayer comes after them defaulting to God's will. This is always appropriate in prayer. Why is that? Because we think we know what's best for us. We are led by our intuitions, our knowledge, our desires, our rationale. We instinctively think, well, that would be a good thing for me to have. That's what I think when I pray, and I think, well, here are all the reasons, God, why you should give me that, and it might turn out that the very thing that I want in prayer is a desire that God has put on my heart to pray. 
it might turn out that all my reasons, God agrees. And the answer might be yes. But the reason we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we don't come like the children of Israel and make demands on God to give us things in our timing and on our terms is because we are finite, imperfect human beings who lack omniscience. I need to submit my prayers to God's sovereign will. I can trust God's revealed word where it speaks. I can trust His wisdom where it doesn't speak. And I can trust His decisions. Listen, I can trust God's decisions when I don't know God's reasons because I know God, because I know His character. I know what kind of God we're serving. And fundamentally, the problem that Israel has here isn't a leadership problem. It isn't a governance problem. It's a spiritual problem. They just don't want God to reign over them. They don't want to live under God's will and His law. Second, there's a warning about the high cost, watch this, of answered prayer. Oh, be careful what you wish for. For Samuel 8, 10 through 18, God instructed Samuel to lay it all out for him. Tell him what the price tag is going to be. Tell him how much this is going to cost. And Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. So this is what the king gets to do. He will take your sons and put them uh, to use in his chariots of, or on his horses or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint for use, his use, as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. Verse 13, and he can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers, which I guess is, are the jobs that women had back then. And he can take your fields, the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your, and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants and your female servants and your best cattle and your donkeys and use them for his work. And he can take a tenth of your flocks and your cells can become his servants. And when the day comes, you will cry out because of the king you have chosen, this rotten autocrat who thinks he's above God's word and thinks he's above God's law. What will you do? You will cry out, oh Lord, save us. Give us another king of our choosing. And what will the Lord say? I'm not listening to you because on that day is going to be a man of my choosing. It's going to be a king of my choosing. And now, now listen, it's not that God doesn't want them to have a king. That's been the eternal plan all along. The problem here is their motives, their timing, and it has to happen on their terms. And that's always the problem with our prayers, isn't it? It always is. So we're seeing a pattern here. And the pattern is this king, if you, if you want this king, a king of your choosing instead of Yahweh's choosing, he, he is going to be characterized by taking from you. And notice the difference between this king and God. Because God is generous. God gives. For God so loved the world that he gave. But this king won't be. And his reign is going to be disastrous. And after he takes everything you have in return, he will give you just a big fat headache. This king will bring misery and ruin and shame to you and your God. And on that day, you're going to ask for another one, and God is going to say, nope, my turn, my turn to choose. It's like when your kids come home and ask you 
for a dog. Remember that? I remember that. My kids, uh, my mom brought my son home. They had gone to uh, the pet store. And he had gone around the pet store and he decided, I want that puppy. And so he just starts telling grandma, I'm going to name him this. And, and so when we get home, this is what we're going to do. And grandma had to say, no, we're not doing that. If I bring a puppy home without asking your mom and dad, your dad is not going to be happy. So she had to explain to him, well, he comes home, and this is what he does. He gets the whole crew. He gets all the rest of them, and they come, and, and they, they come before my court on the couch. <laughs> they come before me, and, and he's the spokesman, and he's like, Dad, there's some good reasons why we should have dog, because dogs are cool, and they're cute, and they love you, and you can love them back. And he lays out all of his reasons why he should have this thing right now. And I hear him out, and then I say, well, let me tell you what it's going to cost you. You're going to be picking up his business in the yard. You're going to be picking up after him. Listen, this dog is going to cause more messes and eat more of your stuff than you can imagine. He's going to cost me food. i got to cut a hole in the back door now for a dog door, in my door. And I lay out all the reasons why, son, this is a horrible idea. We should not have a dog. And then I get him the dog anyway. <laughs> He's cuter than the dog. I can't say no. And then that dog, we bring that dog into our family. Oliver is his name. And he and I have become best friends, kind of a love-hate relationship. But he makes all the messes I told them he would. He does all the things. He, he turns over all the trash cans I told the kids he would. And who ends up for the last 15 years picking up his business in the yard? Not Tyler. Me. <laughs> So when I say the high cost of answered prayer, what are we talking about? If God answers prayer, he's saying yes, right? Isn't he answering your request? Isn't he telling you, yes, I want this for you? Not all the time. Listen, sometimes God answers prayer to teach us to never ask for that again. So be careful what you wish for because God might give it to you. The people of Israel in chapter 8, they just want a new dog. They want a new situation. They want a new shiny object. They want something that will just take their mind off of this cycle of corruption and leadership that they're sick and tired of. But this isn't going to solve it. And they haven't counted the cost of getting what they want on their timing and in their terms. And the story introduces us to two major theological threads that run through the Bible. Actually, those two threads run right through the story. I want to show them to you. Number one is even in judgment, God's redeeming grace is possible. It's there. It's present. Even in judgment, God's redeeming grace is present. Consider some of the more well-known stories of God judging or uh, disciplining people in the Bible. Let's just start with Noah and the flood. Remember that story, Genesis 6 through 9? Why did Noah need to build a boat? Because God is going to destroy the, destroy the world. He's going to wipe out evil, wicked mankind. And so, so right in the midst of this judgment, he finds a family that he can save, and he saves them. Salvation right in the midst of judgment. And what about the prophet Jonah? Remember that story? Even atheists, secular atheists know this story. Jonah is a prophet of God, and he is called on by God to go and preach repentance and grace to the Ninevites. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't want the job. So he gets in a boat and he goes the other way. 
Well, as the story goes, he gets thrown overboard, then a great fish swallows him. Now, I want you to imagine what it would be like to be in the guts of a great fish. It's not like Pinocchio. He's suffocating slowly because there's less and less air in there. The gastric juices of that animal are, are burning his hair and his skin. Just imagine how miserable, and on the third day, wouldn't you repent like the third minute you were inside? I would cry out to God right now. That's how much he hates Nineveh. That's how much he hates the wicked, evil, idolatrous Ninevites who have persecuted Israel. And so he waits three days. He cries out to the Lord, and on the third day, the Lord causes that fish to belch Jonah out onto the beach. And he comes up covered in seaweed and nastiness, and he goes wandering into Nineveh. Hear the word of the Lord. And everybody's like, ah, terrified of this weird-looking guy. And they do repent. And this is what God tells them. This is what God tells them. Because you repented, Nineveh, I did not do the judgment. I did not perform the judgment on you that I was going to do. So, right in the middle of God's judgment, He saves both the prophet from his judgment and He saves Nineveh. That's the God we're talking about. What about Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel chapter 4. Listen, I don't care how you find the most wicked, evil leader on the planet Earth. You, you find him. Xi, uh, what's the guy in North Korea? Kim, Kim Jong-il. You, you find the most evil, wicked ruler on the planet, and they would just be scratching the surface of Nebuchadnezzar's evil. Nebuchadnezzar quite literally built a 90-foot statue of gold of himself. Can you imagine me building a statue in front of our church like that? Welcome to church. Here's a statue of Pastor Jeff. This is the most egregious act of arrogance and evil that a person in the ancient world could commit. Not only that, Nebuchadnezzar has marched down in Jerusalem. He's left that place on fire. He killed tens of thousands of Jews and then hauled thousands more off to Babylon, Babylonia. Think about that. And right here in the middle, as he's exalting himself and standing on his terrace and thinking about how awesome he is, God judges him strikes him down with mental illness, and the dark hordes of hell converge on his mind. And for seven years, he, he is driven out into the wilderness like a beast, like a bear, like a lion, and his fingernails grow gnarly. And at the end of this, when he gets sick and tired of being sick and tired, he lifts his eyes to heaven and his hands, and he cries out to the God of the universe, the God of Israel, to save him. And God does. Do you see the kind of God we're dealing with? Yes, He is a God of judgment, but in the midst of our judgment, He holds out His hand to redeem us. Think about the prodigal son in the New Testament. One of the greatest stories, Luke chapter 15, in the New Testament, Jesus tells a story about a young man, a young Jewish man, who wants his share of the estate. So he takes half of his father's estate and blazes a trail and wanders and ends up in the Greek cities of the Decapolis. And there he's squandering his wealth and riotous living. And he quickly runs out of money and he finds himself this kosher Jewish boy who used to be Torah observant. Now he finds himself temping for a swine farmer. And not only is he taking care of pigs, which defiles him, he's eating the pig's gruel. He's eating their food. And then he comes to a sudden realization. 
the servants at my dad's house live better than this. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to ask dad if I can be just a slave. So as he's coming back, he's haggard, he's emaciated, he's skinny, and the father is waiting, and the father goes running out. As soon as he sees his silhouette in the sun, he comes running out and picks this boy up. And he doesn't even have an opportunity to ask to be a slave. The father just immediately reinstates him in the family because he repented. He came back. Do you see how our God is? That's how God is in this story. Listen, Saul is a judgment on the people. God's answer to this prayer is a judgment to say, you want this, I'll give it to you, but you're going to be sorry. You don't know what the price tag, you don't know what it's cost you, but right in the middle of this, what do you see? You see God orchestrating the story. God has already has a king of his choosing, and it's going to come right on the heels, right out of this story. It's, It's just remarkable. Even in judgment, God's redeeming grace is possible. How about you? Do you remember when you were at your lowest, the most desperate hour? Nowhere to turn? All the things you trusted in to give your life meaning and purpose and value and satisfaction disappeared like smoke in your hands? Do you remember that? And then after wrecking you, God saved you. Do you remember those days? After I came to the end of my rope, I cried out to God, and the Lord Jesus saved me. Remember those days. Now, listen, if you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here and you say, well, I can't remember those days because I never did that, you could do it today. If you come to the end of yourself, to the end of everything you've been trying to achieve and accomplish and do in the world, and you simply cry out to the living God, Embrace the cross, embrace his son who died on a cross and rose on the third day, then he will restore you. Now, that's not a blanket promise to say that you'll never have another problem and that every single consequence in your life is going to just disappear if you come to Jesus. Now, I want to tell you, God does redeem us. In the resurrection at the end of the age, every wrong in your life will be righted. God is going to repay. God is going to be faithful. God is going to repay us and give us back tenfold, a hundredfold what we lost. But sometimes God restores you in this life. I have a friend who made some mistakes with his wife many years ago, about 30 years ago. She left him, and for a couple of years, he was a nomad wandering in the desert. He was the most empty human being I ever saw, devastated, because his wife left him. And then after a couple of years, he turned back to the Lord. He embraced Jesus, and the joy of the Lord became his strength again. And right after that, the Lord sent a woman into his life with just about the most beautiful, wonderful, kind Christian woman you could imagine. And they got married, and for the last 25 years, they've had their share of struggles, just like we all do, but the Lord has filled his life with abundance, a beautiful, wonderful Christian wife, and amazing children, and now grandchildren. I'm here to tell you, we serve a God who's in the redeeming business, amen? And so, in the midst of the consequences, in the midst of your judgment, this is the God that we serve. And the odd thing about 1 Samuel 8 is that even in the midst of God's judgment, giving them Saul, God has set into motion a plan to redeem not just Israel, but the world. Number two, in times of confusion, God's providence, we must understand, is unfailing. 
In times of chaos, apparent chaos, confusion, God's providence is unfailing. God has always planned to raise up a human king to rule in Adam's place. Remember, Adam was a king. He was given a dominion, kingly vocation. Go out and rule the world. Take everything into subjection, under your subjection. Adam and Eve were given that vocation. That was their job description. They failed. Israel also has failed. Saul, who embodies that failure, will fail. But God has a plan to have a human king who will not fail. The problem wasn't Israel's request, it was their motive, their timing, and their terms, and, and how remarkable that God used their, listen, their sinful choices to bring about His will. This is a, a God of incredible providence, folks. What is the doctrine of providence? Well, lots of people have different definitions of it. You can read John Piper's book. It's by the name aptly titled Providence, and it's very good, but I'm going to give you mine because I think it's better. Here's my definition, and it's very, very, very similar to, to his and to other theologians uh, like Wayne Grudem, but it's God's continuous providence is God's continuous purposeful control and care over all creation, orchestrating everything, events, people, circumstances, to ultimately bring the praise of His glory through a redeemed people. Okay? So, first and foremostly, what providence, what makes providence possible is the fact that God is the creator God of all things, and He stands in relationship to all things as its sovereign benevolent ruler, and therefore God orchestrates. God is in control of all events and circumstances and people, and so God is orchestrating all of those events ultimately to bring Him glory, and not just bring Him glory. Listen, creation, inanimate creation brings God glory. It just does live in a, uh, in a state of being, of bringing God glory. But what God wanted was a people redeemed in His grace who expressed the praise of His glory. This is why in Ephesians 1, 4 through 11, Paul says three times, we've been predestined for the praise of His glory. Ultimately, what God wants is that glorious expression of praise. And so, He has always planned on having a people. So, God has planned on having a people through this new king that He's going to install and through His Son, which will fulfill uh, 1 Samuel and also fulfill Psalm chapter 2. So, God's been orchestrating the entire story to lead the king of his, to the king of His choosing and His purpose. And Jesus has been chosen from eternity past. So, Jesus, we know the rest of the story. We actually know the end of the story. Jesus is that king. And if you will just indulge me for three minutes, I want to show you why. I want to show you how it is that Jesus uh, fulfills that promise to David to have an eternal, everlasting king. And so we note Jesus' royal lineage. That's the first one. His royal lineage. lineage. The second Samuel 7, 12, or actually 10 through 16, it says this, when your time comes, this is God talking to David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish his throne or the throne of his kingdom forever, and your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So, how long is this kingdom going to be? It's going to be unending. It's going to be forever. 
Okay, there is no son of David leading up to Jesus who accomplished that or who even would be eligible to accomplish that, okay? Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. We sing this all the time at Christmas. We read this at Christmas. This is not just a Christmas passage. This is an all-year passage. This is then a shoot, a little branch. will grow up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And we learn in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3 in Jesus' genealogical statements that Jesus goes all the way back to David and all the way back to Abraham. And then we have his title as Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6 tells us, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, this is the job description, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus was recognized as the Messiah and the Son of David and the King who preached the gospel of the kingdom. And so, why does he bear all these titles, some of which belong to God the Father? Because he embodies God's kingly reign, the way a sun king is supposed to, the way a vice regent or a viceroy is supposed to. He is God's co-ruler, and he is the Messiah. How does Jesus fulfill this promise next? By proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, it says, In those days, uh, in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself will endure forever. And we know from Mark 1, Luke 17, and other passages that Jesus fulfills this. Jesus is the king of a kingdom. When Jesus comes on the scene, in Matthew chapter 3, it says, and he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Because God's rule, God's reign, which we've been missing, we've been without, has now broken into, suddenly broken into our world. And God rules in the person of Christ, and this kingdom is forever. Jesus fulfilled this promise also through his sacrificial death. We note in Isaiah 53, just read that whole passage. Verse 5, it says, But he, the servant, was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And the New Testament authors interpreted Isaiah 53 to be about Jesus. Jesus is the one who was pierced and beaten and whipped and crushed by the will of God for our sins in our place. And so Jesus holds these titles. Jesus also in his resurrection and ascension, Psalm 16, 10. says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to hell or let your Holy One see corruption. After Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus was resurrected and he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And so several places in the Old Testament, it talks about this dying and rising Mashiach, this dying and rising anointed king. And Jesus is that resurrected and anointed king. And in his second coming, I'll just end with this, Zechariah 14.4. says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies between Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. This is wild. 
Now, I don't know if that's literal or figurative, but I can tell you this is a great prophecy. And Jesus told us in Matthew 24 that he's returning. He told the disciples, listen, I'm, re- I'm going to come back. In John chapter 14, he says, listen, I'm going to go away. And I know you're sad about that, but if I don't go away, you can't receive the Holy Spirit. And if I go, I'll come back and get you. I'll come back because I'm preparing a place for you. Jesus is the returning king. Are you looking for his return today? I hope you do. And he will return to establish his everlasting kingdom on earth where he will reign as the eternal king over all once he subdues the nations and brings the smackdown on all of them, including democratic nations. Can you imagine how difficult it will be for people who who live in uh, democracies, representative democracies, to hear the announcement that uh, the ascended Lord of the world has come and you're now his subjects. Can you imagine how difficult it will be to give up democracy? But Jesus isn't your elected representative. He's the king. And this is where the entire story of Saul is headed and David. So let me ask you some clarifying questions today. Do you tend to try and control every aspect of your life because you just can't be out of control? Are you able to trust God's providence and let go of your need to control everything? The reason I will never, ever own a Tesla car, one of those self-driving cars, I don't care how good the technology ever becomes, I don't trust it. I trust me. I trust my judgment and my knowledge and my experience, and ultimately that's the same problem I have with God. I can't take my hands off the wheel and let God drive because I don't trust his judgment and his knowledge and his will. Can you trust him this morning? The God of all providence, the God who's orchestrating human events to bring the praise of his glory. Secondly, can you think of a time when you faced a dire situation and later realized how God's providence was at work in your life in redeeming grace? If you haven't had that experience, I want to invite you to the adventure of faith this morning to embark on a life of trusting in Jesus and what He has done for you because you can't do anything for yourself. And lastly, are there any situations or decisions in your life right now that you need to place in God's hands? You say, right now, I'm dealing with an issue where during this next song, I need to bow my head and close my eyes and focus my heart and say, God, I I let go of this. I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm, I'm freaked out, but I give it to you. Will you do it this morning? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Father, we thank you this morning for the the many lessons in this chapter. We thank you, Lord, that you desire to answer our prayers. You desire to answer our prayers according to your will. And Lord God, today... We, we just want to confess, Lord, that all, too often we have desired things you don't want for us, or we just miscalculated, or our intuition was wrong. And Lord, you take all of that into account because you know we're finite human beings. Our, our knowledge is limited. And so, God, we ask you boldly because we believe that you are a generous God, and we ask according to your will. And Lord, we just submit we surrender to your providence. This doesn't mean we, we become do-nothing Christians. It just means, Lord, that ultimately we know that your hands are still on the wheel. 
and that human history hasn't gone off the rails. You're still overseeing the world, and you're going to bring a people, a redeemed people, by your grace to the praise of your glory. And we want to be those people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you.